We are continuing our series that we are doing right now on the book of Zechariah. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 4, so I'd encourage you if you have your Bibles to turn to Zechariah 4. Uh, but I also just want to give you a heads up, starting next Sunday, um, Essen is going to be doing a, a, a three-week series on the covenant uh, with particular emphasis upon baptism. So we'll be taking a little break from Zechariah uh, next month. Um, so I just wanted to give you a heads up with that. I feel like since Essence established this precedent last week, I feel like I need to strip down first um, before we preach, but I'm not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> when Jenny and I, we moved here just, just under two years ago, um, we moved into our house. Our, our garage was basically a storage unit. Um, everything that we had that we didn't really know where we were going to put it uh, went into the garage. So we had lots of boxes in the garage. We had you know, furniture that we weren't sure where, where we were going to put it. It all just piled into the garage. So um, the garage was just an absolute uh, mess. It was chaos, um, and it frankly just stressed, stressed me out, because every time I'd walk in there, I would just be overwhelmed by all that needed to be done in order to get our garage to where it needed to be. You know, we needed to, to clean things out. We needed to take a bunch of stuff to the recycling center. I needed to buy and, and build shelves to put on one wall and, and install some racks on another wall. There was just so many things to be done. Uh, it was drove me crazy, which meant I drove my wife crazy thinking about it all the time. I just really wanted to be able to wave like a magic wand and have it just all be done. Um, but of course, that wasn't possible. Well, I've spent many, many hours uh, in there, and I'm glad to say that I've made significant progress. Matter of fact, we can now park a car in our garage. Now, keep in mind, it's a two-car garage, and we can park one in there because the garage is still not done. It is one of my many unfinished projects. Do you guys, do you have any unfinished projects? I imagine if we're all honest with one another, we would all say, yes, we all have unfinished projects in our lives. Now, it may be a garage, it may be another room in your house, but it may be an unfulfilled dream. It may be a relationship that is broken, that has yet to be restored. We all have things in our lives that seem impossible to fix. So what are we to do with these things? Well, we'll see in, our, in, in the book of Zechariah that God's people, they were facing an unfinished project. They were tasked with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And this was starting to look like it was going to be an impossible thing to do. And so in the midst of their doubts and struggle, God sent them Zechariah to encourage them and to remind them that what seems impossible for man is not impossible for God. And so we're going to see more of that in this passage. So I ask you to stand in honor and reverence of God's Word. And I'll be reading chapter 4 from Zechariah. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked, to, talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is living and active, and we ask that you would, through your spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand these words, and that you would apply them to us, that we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Lord, we know that prophecy can be difficult to understand. We pray that you'd give us understanding and clarity. And as we work through this chapter, that our faith would grow, that we'd be greatly encouraged, and that we'd be reminded of the power of your grace, and that Jesus would be exalted when we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So this is the fifth vision given to Zechariah. Um, and the structure of this vision is, is a bit unusual. It starts with Zechariah being a, awakened by an angel from his sleep. And then he's given this vision. It's a vision of, of a golden lampstand and, and two olive trees. And Zechariah asked the question uh, to this angel, what are these? And this is where things get a little unusual because the angel doesn't answer him. Instead, he gives Zechariah a message to pass on to Zerubbabel, who is the governor over the Israelites. So he's the governor of that region, and we find uh, that in verses 6 through 10. And after he receives this message for Zerubbabel, Zechariah returns to his question, what are these two olive trees? Still no answer. So Zechariah asks once more in verse 12, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes? from which the golden oil is poured out. And finally, after being called out once again for his ignorance or his inability to understand this, the angel answers him in verse 14. So the question for us is, is how, how does this vision of the golden lampstand and these two olive trees, how does that relate to this message that is given to Zerubbabel? Because they don't really seem to go together. As a matter of fact, this has led many scholars to, to say that this was actually a mistake. That, the, that verses 6 through 10 had accidentally been inserted into this vision of the golden lampstand, that it was actually meant to be a separate passage, that these things were not related to one another. So, so what are we to make of this? Well, first, we need to remember that this is God's Word, that it is inspired by Him, and that God does not make mistakes, that the order given to us is intentional. And when we understand this, we will see that what is happening between Zechariah and the angel actually serves as a wonderful and practical application of, of the main point of this passage. You see that the centerpiece of this vision, the, the, the main point is found in verse 6, which says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The more we come to understand what that means, the more we will realize that God's grace conquers all obstacles, that His grace overcomes humble beginnings, and that His grace equips the weak. How? In grace, God gave His people, He gave us His Spirit, and that makes all the difference in the world. 
So let's look at the first one of these. God's grace conquers obstacles. We see this in verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So this great mountain, it represents the obstacles and the opposition that Zerubbabel and the Israelites faced when it came to rebuilding the temple. The task that was given to them was not an easy task. There were many things that stood in their way from being able to complete it. Matter of fact, the obstacles were so large that they were compared to a great mountain, a great mountain that could not be crossed. Zerubbabel was given an impossible task. The Israelites had little hope that the temple was ever going to be built again. So what were some of these obstacles? Well, the rebuilding of the temple had actually began 17 years earlier. And they were able to actually get the foundation in place. But then the building stopped. And in Ezra chapter 4, we read about why that building stopped. And this is what Ezra 4 says. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. There, were, there was a mountain of opposition against the rebel and against the Israelites. The people of the land, they hated the Jews, and they hated God, and they did not want His temple to be rebuilt. And so they did everything in their power to prevent this from happening. So they threatened the Jews, they actually lied about them, they made accusations about them, they even bribed officials so that they would not be able to get the resources and permits they needed to build the temple. And you know what? Their efforts worked. We read later in, in chapter 4 that the word got to the king of the land, and the king finally ordered the rebuilding to cease. And so it did. And it sat there unfinished for many, many years. And this led to another, or created another obstacle for Zerubbabel. He also had to deal with a mountain of doubt and a mountain of disappointment. You see, once he received the green light to start building again, think about how difficult it's going to be for him to convince the people to start this project all over again. It really was a hopeless situation. From, from a human perspective, it was an impossible task. Zerubbabel did not have enough resources. He did not have enough manpower. And he still faced heavy opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. How could he lead the Israelites to rebuild the temple? Well, this brings us back to verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, there is no way that they, were, they would be able to rebuild the temple in their own efforts. They could not do it in their own strength. They've already proven that to be true. They failed at doing this 17 years earlier. But God, in His grace, He had not given up on His people. He reminds Rubble that He has given him a might and a power that is sufficient for the task. He has given him a might and a power that is far greater than anything the Israelites could do themselves. A might and a power that is far greater than anything all the nations combined could offer them. God has given His people His Spirit. And His Spirit is sufficient. They don't need anyone or anything else to accomplish the task that they've given Him. Now, the word in, in the Old Testament for spirit is the word ruach, and it's the same word used for wind, and th this can be instructive. Now, we need to be careful because there's a difference. You know, unlike the wind, the spirit is not just some force, it is not just some presence. 
He is the third person of the Trinity. He is fully God. But much like the wind, he is unseen, yet creates visible results. And he is far more powerful than anything humans can muster on their own. Think about it this way. Now imagine if, for whatever reason, you had to cross the Atlantic Ocean, and you were given the choice between a small rowboat and a sailboat. Which one would you choose? I assume and hope all of us would choose a sailboat. Why? Because a rowboat relies entirely and solely upon human effort. It would be near impossible to row across the Atlantic Ocean. It would require an incredible amount of energy and resources to paddle a rowboat across the ocean. Now, out of curiosity, I actually looked this up and didn't realize, but there are actually many races that they do this, um, but it takes them months to cross the ocean. Now, a sailboat is, is powered by the wind, and is therefore it's, greater, it's, it's able to do greater things. And that is what God is telling Zerubbabel. Stop relying upon yourself. Stop relying upon your own efforts. Stop relying upon your own wisdom. Stop relying upon your own strength. Because they are not working, and they cannot accomplish this task. Instead, rest and rely upon the Holy Spirit whom I have given you. He will accomplish this task through you. Now let us consider for a moment some of the things that the Spirit has already done. If you look all the way back in Genesis 1, you see that the Spirit was there involved in the creation of the entire universe. Or if you look at Exodus 15, it's the Spirit is the one who opens the Red Sea so that the Israelites can cross on dry land. And He is the one that closes the Red Sea upon the Egyptians as they pursued the Israelites. Or again, in, in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit is the one who brings to life dead, dry bones. These are just a few of the examples where we find God doing amazing things through His Spirit. So what is a bunch of rubble? What is a, an unfinished temple to Him? What can some hostility to His plan and purpose do? The answer is clear. Nothing. If God wants His people to build the temple, then it will be built. And to assure that this will be true, He gives them His Spirit. And with the Spirit working in and through them, what really is this great mountain of opposition that stands in their way? Well, look again at verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. The Spirit lays waste to any mountain of opposition that stands in Zerubbabel in the, in the Israelites' ways. They will rebuild the temple. That is why the angel goes on to tell Zerubbabel that he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it, the top, top stone, this is also known as the capstone. It is the final stone that goes on top of the temple. When this stone is placed, it means that the temple is done. And Zerubbabel is given the promise and assurance that he indeed will be the one that lays that stone. And as he does this, look at the response of the people. Grace, grace. This is a cry of praise. It is a celebration of God's work and his blessing. It is a recognition that God is the one who actually built the temple. He was the one that laid flat the mountain. He is the one that provided them with the resources and the ability and the energy to build this temple. It is by grace alone that this capstone is placed. It is grace is what finishes the temple. And this is how God works. God is a gracious God. And, his grace, and in His grace, He uses sinful weak, flawed human beings to accomplish great things. 
we need to remember this. It is never by human power or wisdom that we will grow the kingdom of God. We must trust in the Spirit to guide us and to equip us for whatever God calls us to do. God always does things in such a way that He is the one who receives the glory. And we must continue to humble ourselves. We must continue to seek the Spirit's guidance and power and strength as we seek to follow Jesus. This is why one of the great and urgent needs for the church today is is a fresh outpouring of the Spirit upon His people. Let us pray that God will, will be gracious to us in that way. So we see here in in this passage, we see how the Spirit works in in the big things. Rebuilding of the temple in the past, building His kingdom today. But let us also consider how the Spirit works in in the small things as well. What are some obstacles that you are dealing with right now? What are the mountains in your life? Maybe you are facing a, a mountain of discouragement. Maybe it's a, it's a mountain of financial crisis or past failures. Maybe you are dealing with a mountain of addiction. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's guilt. Or whatever you're struggling with, it is not hopeless. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit can take any mountain and flatten it. God can conquer any enemy. He can overcome any obstacle. And as long as you continue to cling to Christ and humbly trust the Spirit to do His work, then this is true for you, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, spirit, says the Lord. One commentator said this, But standing in the power of God's Holy Spirit, when the mountain says, I'm a mountain, what are you? We can say, I'm a child of God, living in the power of God's Spirit. The blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed me. His Spirit lives inside of me. Mountain, you will become level ground. We can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from God. But God, working in and through us through His Spirit, we can do amazing things. Do you, do you actually believe that is true? There's another practical example that we see in this passage. It's an example of the fact that we can't do anything apart from the Spirit. We find this in Zechariah's response to the vision that he's given. He's given this this vision of the golden lampstand and these two olive trees, uh, and he doesn't understand it. And so he seeks clarity from the angel, um, and he does it on three different occasions. He is only able to understand the vision when the angel reveals it to him, and we find that in verse 14. Another way to think about this is Zechariah is unable to understand the vision in his own power and might, in his own wisdom. And this is also instructive for us, right? It it takes, for for Zechariah, it took a revelation of God to reveal the truth of this to him. Because there are times when we read God's Word that we don't understand it. It's difficult to understand. How, How do we respond in times like that? Zechariah, he was relentlessly persistent and seeking the truth. However, he needed divine illumination before he was able to understand the vision given to him. And and that is true for us as well. We need God's Spirit to open our hearts and minds to His Word. Do we approach God 
And do we approach God in His Word with a, with a relentless persistence and with a humble reliance upon the Spirit to open His Word to us and to apply it to our hearts? It's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit that we will be able to understand and apply God's Word. God's grace conquers obstacles, including darkened minds and hardened hearts. His grace also overcomes humble beginnings. Look back at verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So, so if Zerubbabel still wasn't quite sure about this promise God has given him, this really relieves any doubts. God will not only complete his temple, but he's going to do it through Zerubbabel, and he's going to do it in short order. Zerubbabel, who was the one who, who led the initial efforts to build the temple, he is also going to be the one who finishes it. You know, the initial attempt, it, it faltered and it failed. But God was not done. He still had plans with Zerubbabel. He would still lead the people in the building of this temple. And Zerubbabel would actually be there when the temple is finished. The project was not going to take centuries. This rebuilding of the temple was not going to involve multiple generations. The temple was going to be rebuilt in his time. And this is a shocking revelation. That's why we read in verse 10, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the day of small things, that actually refers to the initial building of the temple, the one that failed years earlier. The Israelites, they would look day after day at this unfinished wall, this unfinished foundation, and they would wonder if the temple would ever be built again. And this happened for years. So they started to despise the foundation of the temple. It was a reminder to them of their failure, it was a reminder to them of their weakness and of their helplessness and of their hopelessness. They despised those stones. They had forgotten who God is and what He can do. But God, God is patient. He is merciful. He is gracious. What appeared to be nothing more than small things to the people was just the beginning of what God was planning to do. They will see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. Now, that's an interesting word there. The plumb line actually literally means um, stone of ten. And it's referring to what's called the stone of separation. This is a special ceremonial stone that, that marks the temple as a, as a unique place where God meets with his people. It also marks the temple as a place that separates God's people from the rest of the world, that they are God's chosen people. And this stone, along with the capstone that we read in verse 7, these are the final two pieces of the temple that go on top of the temple. So when the people, they see Zerubbabel carrying the stone, it's a reminder to them, it's a picture to them that the temple is done. And therefore they rejoice. The impossible has happened. The day they never thought would come has come. The temple has been rebuilt. They despise the foundation that was laid years earlier. But God wasn't done. And now He has finished the temple. And the people who once despised the rebuilding of the temple now rejoice at what God has done. And we can learn from much from this as well. You see, it's, it's, it's easy to despise the days in which we live, isn't it? How many of us still like to focus on what we call maybe the glory days or the past days and think how much better those days were? Or maybe you struggle because Things are not the way you believe they should be. And so we grumble. We complain. 
We despise the small things. But we need to remember the lesson that is here for us. The way things are are not the way things shall be. We should never judge any of God's work based upon how it appears in the present. Paul writes in, in, in Philippians 1.6, He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As Christians, we can live with great hope. We can live with great expectation and anticipation. God will finish everything He starts. The best, the best is yet to come. There's coming a day where you will experience joy beyond measure. When the kingdom of God comes in, in its full and final consummation, when Jesus returns, the joy you experience will far outweigh. It will crush any doubts or sorrows that we experience today. Do you believe that? A pastor once said that every church has what he calls the cold water committee. This is a committee of people that basically they have appointed themselves to be the crusher of dreams. You know, they seek to discourage anyone that believes that God might be leading them to do something new or something different. They love to point out all the different things in the church that are not working or that are failing. They despise the day of small things. Is that you? Are you part of that committee? Do you view things from a human perspective? Or do you seek to view things from God's perspective? God is working in our midst. However, God always works in His way and according to His timeline. Are we willing to submit to Him in that? Israel went from despising the work of the temple to rejoicing over that. And not only does God promise to finish the temple through Zerubbabel, He also promises to vindicate Zechariah as one of His prophets. Look at verse 9. He says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When the temple is completed, it will show that the word that came through Zechariah about completing the temple was actually true. It will authenticate Zechariah as one of God's prophets. And this is a, another act of God's grace. His grace conquers obstacles. His grace overcomes humble beginnings. And His grace equips the weak. In verses 11 through 14, we return once again to the vision of the golden lampstand and two olive trees. And, and so really the primary question we have here is, is what, what are these things? What are we supposed to, what do they mean? How are we to interpret them? Well, let, let's start with the olive trees because we're actually given the answer in verse 14, which says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The, the two anointed ones referred to here are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Uh, the fourth vision, which Essen preached on last week in, in chapter 3, was about Joshua he is the high priest. And the fifth vision, which is here in chapter 4, is about Zerubbabel, and he is the, he's the governor over Israel. Um, and together, these two men, they represent the priestly and political offices of Israel, of God's people. And, and God has called these two men um, to lead Israel in the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And, and this is something that God has always done for His covenant people. He has always provided them with a priest and a king to help them flourish in the promised land. The priest was the one who made atonement for the people. He is the one that interceded for them. And the king governed them, and he led them, and he protected them against their enemies. And together they were appointed by God, and they represented God to his people. But even now, even now that the people are in exile, 
he still provides his people with these two offices. In this case, with Joshua and Zerubbabel. They are pictured here as olive trees providing oil to the golden lampstand. So, so what is this golden lampstand? What are we supposed to make of that? Well, the lampstand represents the witness of God's people. The temple was not only a picture of God dwelling with the people, but it was also meant to be a light to the nations. It was meant to draw people to God from all nations. Listen to these words from Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. Jesus himself uses similar imagery. Listen to what he, he describes. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how he describes his people or the church. He says, you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So light, lamps, or in this case a golden lampstand, they are all pictures of the covenant community. They are pictures of the church. More specifically, they are a picture of our witness to the world. So we see here in this fifth vision that God has raised up and he has anointed Joshua and Zerubbabel not only to, to lead his people in the rebuilding of the temple, but more importantly, to encourage them to restore their witness as God's people to the world. And, and what do we know about these two men? What do we know about Joshua and Zerubbabel? Well, Joshua, he is a high priest with no temple. Matter of fact, he is, if you hear the word Joshua or the name Joshua, you're not going to think of this Joshua. You're going to think of another Joshua. And Zerubbabel, his name literally means descendant of Babylon. That, that's similar to like if I was to call, name one of my children. If, if, instead of naming Drew, Drew, if we named him something that meant son of Hitler. It, it brings to, to mind a wicked kingdom. And not only that, even though Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, he is not actually king. He is under a king of a foreign nation, and he's given authority by that king to rule over God's people as his governor. So these two men, they didn't exactly have the best resumes, and yet this is who God chose to represent him. This is who God chose to lead his people. This vision shows us that God can use weak leaders to lead weak people to do amazing things for his glory. God's grace conquers obstacles. His grace overcomes humble beginnings. His grace equips the weak. Now, do you still need proof that that's true? Because if you do, look to Jesus. God's grace is revealed by him. This whole passage points us to Jesus. We see in this passage talking about two offices, the office of priest and of king. Well, these two offices come together in one person. Jesus is both priest and king. He intercedes for us. He has made atonement for us by his blood. He rules and reigns over us, and he leads us and protects us. And not only that, but he is building us into the temple of God. Listen to these words from Ephesians 2. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are, Jesus is building us into his temple so that we can be a light to the nations, so that the nations would be drawn to him. Jesus has conquered all the obstacles that stood in, the, in, in our way of becoming his. He overcame humble beginnings in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And he equips us through his spirit to be his ambassadors so that we would shine his light to the ends of the earth. David Strain, who's another PCA pastor, he said this. He said, Jesus has come in the fullness of the spirit in the mountain of this world's hostility that seemed to engulf him. Even to snuff him out at Calvary was in fact utterly laid low by him. And now by the Spirit he is building for himself a temple as he gathers from every nation a people to himself. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell are not and will not and cannot prevail against it. If you were here this morning struggling with something, if there are mountains of opposition in your life, your greatest need is not to have more resources. Your greatest need is not to have more money. Your greatest need is not to have more knowledge or understanding. Your greatest need is is not to have better and more powerful friends and connections. Your greatest need is to have more of Jesus. And this is true for every area of your life. If you're struggling in your marriage, if you're struggling with, with raising kids and your family, if you're struggling in the workplace, whatever it is, you need more of Jesus. You need His Spirit to equip you and to guide you and to encourage you. We need to look to Jesus in all these areas of life, and we need to ask for the grace of His Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us your spirit to live within us, to equip us and enable us to do the things that you call us to do. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we try to do those things in our own strength, in our own wisdom, by our own power. I pray that you'd humble each of us, that we would stop relying upon ourselves and rather rely upon you at work in us. Lord, it's amazing to think that you take a bunch of sinners like us and that you form us into your temple so that we can be a light to the nations. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to do that here through Tabernacle, that you'd continue to do that through your church across the world, and that many would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior through us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.